The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, let's come to the questions for tonight. Uh, okay, yeah, quite a few, so we'll see how we go. Venerable uh, Ajayana. Sometimes we plan and organize retreats, etc. Is this uh, does this also make sufferings? <laughs> um, it can do. Yeah, depends on how you do it. If you are wise about it, it will create happiness. If you are silly about it, it creates suffering. Yeah. You know, anything you do in life, even when you do good dhamma work, sometimes you kind of get upset because things go the wrong way. And anything can be made into suffering if you are silly. But uh, if you do it in the right way, with the right attitude, with a sense of kindness and generosity, wanting to help out, uh, it will always lead towards happiness. Everything is in how we do things. Uh, that is what matters. And planning and organizing is important, but you have to know when to plan and organize. There is a time to do it and there is a time not to do it. Uh, when you sit down and to uh, relax and enjoy the meditation, it's the wrong time to plan. Yeah. <laughs> This is kind of the trick, is to know when to do things. So the when is important and the how is important. These are the kind of the two issues you always need to remember. Nothing is either wrong or right in its own right. Yeah, it's not about, and nothing is really watching the breath. It can be wrong or it can be right, depending on how you do it. Uh, planning can be wrong and right, depending on how you do it. Everything in the world is like that. Uh, the only thing which is wrong is kind of, defilements that's kind of the only thing that is wrong uh, the only thing which is right is pure mind states uh, so uh, it's a so that is really the critical issue how you do it and when you do it uh, the intention is for the benefits of others uh, this is a will to do it properly sometimes i'm confused what is the best way what is the right way to do things uh, in day-to-day -day life help uh, helping others with metta is not considered as suffering please explain yeah so that's true so in daily life in daily life the most important thing again is just to watch your mind and to make sure that you do things in the right way when you see that uh, uh, the defilements come up then you have to be really careful yeah because defilements always leads to problems uh, it always leads to arguments and kind of negative things down the line uh, so always uh, make sure it is how we do things that matter uh, yeah planning and organizing at the right time is necessary uh, the the thing about uh, the mind is that there's two different ways of planning and organizing uh, and one is when it is a deliberate effort uh, yeah you know i'm going to need to plan for this retreat i'm going to plan for my life i'm going to plan for my finance financial savings or whatever it is and of course all of these things need to be planned to some extent uh, so you do that but it's a deliberate thing uh, the problematic kind of planning is just when your mind, do, you know, just goes to these things without you really wanting to go there. Uh, and it's planning and thinking and all kind of things. Uh, that is not a deliberate planning. It's just the mind uh, running uh, on its own accord without you really wanting it to. Uh, that is a big difference. One of the, those is con uh, has mindfulness coming with it. You are mindful. You do things deliberately. There's a... There's a um, you know what you're doing the other one is there is no mindfulness uh, and the mind is just uh, kind of creating these things uh, uh, because of habits of the past or whatever it is uh, 
So you can so that is a very important di distinction, yeah. That whether you're doing it with mindfulness or not. If you have mindfulness, you have a feeling of being in control. You are in charge of your mind. Yeah, you know what you're doing. You are in control of what's happening. That's what mindfulness is. If the mindfulness is lacking, there's a feeling that the mind is running itself. You cannot say to the mind, "Okay, now be quiet." The mind still carries on. That is a problem. So. Uh, yeah, so I hope that makes sense. So let's see how that if that works for you. Okay. Um, if the Noble Eightfold Path is followed, worked and practiced to the full extent and the full awakening is realized, does it mean that one is no longer subject to the first noble truth? That the end of suffering dukkha means no longer being subject to the first noble truth. There's a smiley face at the end. Yeah. <laughs> It essentially means that, yeah. So uh, if you go to the end of the path and you become an arahant, then uh, suffering will be largely, largely gone. There may be a tiny little bit left, yeah, but the, the amount that is left is so small, it doesn't really matter anymore. At that point, you can enter any meditation state at will because all the things that block you from attaining deep state of meditation is all gone. And the uh, the entire mental dart as mentioned the two darts before there is the physical dart uh, which you is always there if you have a physical body and then there's the mental dart which is the mental reactions that we have to the physical dart uh, so by removing the mental dart uh, yeah basically 99 95% 99% of suffering is gone there's only a tiny tiny bit left uh, which is kind of the physical suffering uh, yeah which is unavoidable in the suttas, you hear about the Buddha. Even the Buddha sometimes would say, you know, his back is painful. Huh? So he would ask another monk to do some teaching and then he would lie down to stretch his back yeah, or something like that. So even the Buddha sometimes had pains, bodily pains, uh, because that's the nature of the body. But essentially, at that point, you are, uh, you are uh, first noble truth, pretty much sorted. That is correct. Uh, okay. Dear Arjan, thank you for the profound talk. Sometimes whilst meditating, I have thoughts of gratitude. Uh, uh, gratitude arising, and that makes me feel nice and my heart feels full. You talked about ultimately even transcending these feelings, but uh, these seem to be the hardest. How do you refine these feelings? So that's really good that you have since. Uh, thoughts of gratitude is actually very helpful and uh, it is the those beautiful feelings that arise with those thoughts that you really want to move towards uh, yeah the thought is not really what you want is you want that feeling which comes with the thought uh, that is actually what you want to uh, give rise to and this is actually something the buddha teaches in so many places in the suttas uh, it's found everywhere these are called the anusattis the recollections uh, and in the sutta, there's six kind of standard recollections uh, that you find everywhere. It's the uh, uh, Buddha Nusati, recollection of the Buddha Dhamma Nusati, rec recollection of the teachings, Sangha Nusati, the recollections of the Noble Sangha, uh, the uh, Sila Nusati, the recollection of your own good conduct. Uh, yeah, this is often a very nice thing to do. Uh, um, Chaga Nusati, uh, recollection of your generosity. Devata Nusati, recollection of the Devatas, the Devas. Uh, it's kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> and then you have the gratitude, yeah, which is you can expand these anusattis if you like uh, in many different ways. Gratitude is one way of doing it, uh, and uh, gratitude is a very noble thing. Uh, 
the Buddha specifically says that it's hard, it's rare for people to feel real gratitude in the world. So if you feel that, it's wonderful. Uh, and make that something that uh, you use to give rise to these feelings. Uh, and once you kind of uh, use these anusatis, which are reflections or recollections, then according to the standard sequence of uh, how meditation arises, then you get the joy from that. Uh, yeah. Then you get the rapture, then you get the tranquility, then you get the sukha, the happiness. Uh, then comes the samadhi. Yeah. So this is the foundation for samadhi, deep meditation to happen. Uh, so it's wonderful. Do that. Use that. But use it a little bit. Uh, don't over. If you think too much, it's going to be distractive. Once that arises, then try to bring that gratitude with the breath. Uh, have gratitude to the breath even, uh, because the breath has the ability to take you into states of samadhi. The breath is something very uh, beautiful in that sense. Yeah, It is an, this wonderful friend that you take on this marvelous journey of meditation together. Uh, so you can have that sense of metta, friendliness, gratitude, even to the breath, if you wish. Uh, and then uh, yeah, you carry it forward in that sense. Uh, so uh, the Buddha talks about this very often. It's a gradual path. You start by overcoming the unwholesome thoughts. Uh, once the unwholesome thoughts are gone, then you also eliminate the uh, refined thoughts. Yeah, he says that specifically. And then when the refined thoughts are gone, then the mind becomes peaceful. So you are done the first step. Yeah, then carry on. Th make the next step from that. Uh, go with the feelings and allow the thoughts to die down. Uh, Venerable Sir, consciousness transmission. In Majjhima Nikaya 38, the Mahatana Sankhya Sutta, the Buddha admonishes Bhikkhu Sati for saying that consciousness uh, transient from one life to the next one. Transient. Okay. Can you please explain this? Uh, this, whatever. Yeah, this. Okay, this. That's good enough. That will do. Uh, one, how does it transmit? If not like a monkey jumping from one tree to the next one, is it like a um, like a current in an induction coil, like a secondary current in induction coil? Okay, um, okay. Thank you, sir. Uh, wishing you and wishing you enlightenment. Okay, <laughs> there's a nice drawing here of one current in inducing another one in induction coil. Okay, that's really very fancy. Okay, uh, good. So is it like no? I, I not can't, perhaps it is. I I'm not sure if that is a maybe that is a way of looking at it. Maybe that's a possibility, but um, it it is no different from uh, how consciousness transmits in this life. Yeah, Con consciousness is always passing away and rearising, always changing shapes, uh, always moving from one sense organ to the next one. Uh, it's basically the same thing that happens when you die. Yeah, it's no it's no different. Uh, it's not, there's no transmi real transmission going from one life to the next one. There's just this continuity uh, as you have in this life. So what is it like in this life? Uh, well, it is, a, it is a sense of continuity. Yeah, you, you think of yourself who you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it is. Uh, who you are now, there's a sense of continuity. Uh, and that is the habits that we have, that we bring along with us. Uh. But also, if you look carefully, there's also no... Uh, even though there is a sense of continuity, there is no real continuity. Uh, and one way of thinking about it is like a, a river. Uh, if you think about a river, if you look at one, if you keep your eyes on one particular point in the river, the water molecules passing by are completely different from moment to moment. Yeah, 
they move on very rapidly here. But the shape of the river is much more slow to change. Uh, the sh overall shape of the river depends on the amount of um, rain or snow or d if you have a drought or whatever. Yeah, that, that is what actually establishes the shape of the river. So over the weeks and months, the shape may change depending on the precipitation and all of these kind of things that you have. Uh, but still, every moment there is change in that river. Uh, and that is, in a sense, a bit like consciousness. Yeah, Your mind has a kind of overall shape uh, that tends to be there. That is a sense of continuity that you have. Uh, but also there is this constant change inside of you. Uh, and that is exactly what happens from one life to the next one. Uh, it's just m consciousness carrying on uh, Yeah, from this life to the next one. Uh, it doesn't. Th there is an abrupt change sometimes because you move from one existence to another one. Uh, so that is really the, ab the abruptness. Uh, and you may move to a higher or lower kind of existence or whatever. But it, from your point of view, it will seem like a continuity, just like you have a continuity in this life. Uh, you carry your habits with you. Uh, this is the problem, yeah? You carry, move one moment on to the next one. Uh. So it is no different from this life, uh, moving from life to life. Uh, the same kind of idea, except that you leave certain things behind, like your physical body or whatever. Uh. Dear Ajahn, uh, besides breath as a meditation object, what else can be used for meditation? Can I use the surrounding sound when I try to meditate uh, as uh, on, on the train? Appreciate your advice. Can you use the surrounding sound? Um, you can, if it depends what you're doing. If, if all you want to do is be mindful, then you can use the surrounding sound because the surrounding sound can, you know, if you just go with the flow of things as they say going with the flow of things means like hearing the sound or seeing the sights or whatever it is uh, yeah that's okay you can use that just to, to be mindful uh, and uh, it's not going to give you any kind of deep meditation if you go with the sound because the sound is always changing and moving around unless it is a very steady sound uh, if it's a very steady sound you can maybe use that initially to calm down the mind uh, like a sound which disappears eventually uh, but uh, to be mindful, you can use that. Uh, but uh, it's important to remember the purpose of mindfulness. Sometimes you will, you know, uh, we talk about being mindful in daily life. Uh, and uh, that is that's good. It's good to be mindful, of course, because then you know what is going on. Uh, but the question is how to use that mindfulness. Uh, yeah, okay, so you are mindful. Then what? Uh, and the whole point of mindfulness is the is the ability to regulate yourself, regulate your mental content on how you act and how you speak. So you know what is going on. That is the purpose of mindfulness. Uh, so because the path is a path of purification, it is not just enough to be mindful. Sometimes we talk about mindfulness as if that is a thing in its own right, and it is, but we need to use it in the right way. Uh, and the way to use it in the right way is to know what is happening in your mind. Uh, are you about to get upset about something? Uh, are you about to have some excessive desire for something? Uh, are you kind of uh, being deluded or, or whatever? You know what's going on. And then especially with ill will, you can change tack. Uh, you can change your perception, look at the situation in a new way, and then stop your mind from giving rise to this negative feeling inside of you. Uh, this is really the point of mindfulness. Being mindful just for its own sake uh, is not that useful unless you know how to apply it. Uh, then when you come to meditation, then the purpose of mindfulness is actually to take you to samadhi. 
Yeah? Then you are aware what the purpose is to bring you to a deep state of samadhi. That's why you focus on a narrow object, not on the sound, but on the breath, because that narrowness of focus allows samadhi to arise eventually. Yeah? So you should, you, it's important to know why we're doing these things. Mindfulness in its own right, just for being mindful, is not very, not all that useful. Yeah. I mean, be, why? Well, because if you get angry, you need to know what to do. It's not enough just to be mindful of the anger. Uh, the Buddha specifically says that mindfulness is not enough to overcome ill will. It's found in one of the suttas in the Sangyutta Nikaya. It can be helpful if you stand back and you don't allow yourself to be involved, but usually it's not enough. You usually need something more to, to hinder the ill will from arising. That is a, a kind of a reflection. Uh, many places in the suttas, the Buddha is very clear that to overcome unwholesome states, you need to reflect and contemplate in the right way. You need to use your mind wisely. Uh, just standing back and looking on is often not enough, not sufficient to overcome these things. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah. So that's what I would say. So you can, yeah, if you just enjoy sitting on the train, just being mindful, uh, whatever. Uh, sure, it's good. Uh, but also know the purpose of what you're doing here. Uh, Okay. Hello. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Uh, when taking the precepts, do you do you look on look on it? Look on it, yeah, as making an aspirational intention or as a vow. Um look at it more like an aspirational intention. Uh, yeah, if it is a vow, it becomes can become too oppress oppressive. It's like, I must keep these precepts, and if I don't, I'm a bad person. That's a bit like that, to make a vow. But don't think of yourself as a bad person. It's not very useful. Everyone makes mistakes sometimes. So think of it as aspirational intention. Yeah, it is much better. And then you are on the right track. So, And sometimes the precepts, you know, sometimes the precepts are, they are also... Uh, really just approximations to morality anyway, because morality is actually in Buddhism, really come, has to do with motivation, what motivates your actions. Uh, that's really what, um, in the end, is real morality, whether you're virtuous or not. Uh, so if you want to really know what is moral, you have to look at your intentions. Uh, but the precepts are a good approximation, yeah? So they're usually they are right. Uh, so uh, you try your best, and if you fail, you forgive yourself, and you try to understand why you failed, and then you do better next time. Uh, that's really uh, the good way of doing it. Uh. Okay, uh, dear Ajahn, following on from your insightful analysis of contemplation of death this morning, can you could you advise on how to care for the dying from Buddhist point of view? In Sri Lanka, there is a practice of reading the Pinpota, a book of good actions done by the person. That's really nice. That's a really nice one, actually. Pinpota is book. Yeah. And pin. Merit? What is it related to in Pali? Punya. Ah, pin is punya. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So punya. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really nice. I like. I actually heard about this before. Uh, and that's a really nice tradition. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Often we forget about the things that we have done in life. We forget about all the goodness. Uh, and when someone reminds you, oh, yeah, actually, that's a good point. Uh, and then you feel really good about it. Uh, that is a it's a, a wonderful little uh, tradition, but um, 
I guess the danger of it is that you can maybe hold on to those things a little bit too much and overthink them and then destroy some of the uh, happiness uh, if you do that. But uh, so if you are wise about it, that will be very, very useful. It's a very nice idea. So uh, when someone is dying, the best thing to do is that sort of thing. Yeah, Go to their bedside and uh, just talk to them and remind them of uh, some of the good things they have done uh, and especially remind them of how they have affected you, yeah. How uh, the things that have really touched you, uh, they have how they have touched you in your life, uh, and that is often very makes it very personal. It's not some kind of just idea in your head, but it's a real felt, heartfelt uh, thing that you are gr have gratitude for their actions. And then it becomes really, really useful. Uh, so go to the bed and say, wow, remember these things? I'm so grateful for all of these good qualities of yours. Uh, and you did, you did, we did this together and that was meant so much for me. Uh, and uh, this is really a wonderful way of, of, of touching people in a deep way. And um, having been a Buddhist monk for 25 years and then when my family you know, members started to, to die, then I knew roughly what I had to do or that's what I, I that's what I felt like anyway. It felt like I, I knew what I had to do uh, when things got difficult. And one of the things I did with my father, like a son, you know, always we tend to it's very easy to be critical of our parents uh, uh, sometimes. Uh, and I realized that I too had probably been too critical, especially in my teenage years and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so not so long before he passed away, I wrote him a long letter and, and telling him all the things that I really valued in in my father. I never really done that before quite in that way. Uh, and I could tell when I spoke to him later on on the phone that it really touched him in a very deep way. Uh, yeah, when you get something like that from your son, uh, someone who you used to being critical and not really, you know, um, appreciating uh, their father uh, and suddenly turning around, it had a very profound effect. Uh, so these things really matter. And do it to the people who are closest to you, uh, to people who are your parents or your you know, whoever it is that is close, because they are the people who will often have the most impact. Uh, so do that. Uh, yeah, do these things. Uh, remember, there's a chance here to make some very good karma also for you uh, when you do this. It's not just for the person who's dying. You're also doing it for yourself. Uh, uh, one of the things that always I found so astonishing in the suttas is where the Buddha says in the idea of right view, he says there is a mother and father uh, and it seems like such a strange statement. There is mother and father. Yeah, of course there is mother and father. So the Buddha must obviously mean something more. And uh, when you know the context, the context of right view is always about um, uh, making good karma and understanding rebirth and all of these kind of things. Uh, so when the Buddha says there is mother and father, the meaning is that it's a very deep field of merit. It's a very profound field of merit. There's a lot of good merit or bad merit to be made if you treat your parents in the right or the wrong way. And that is why you see in the suttas, if you kill your parents, it's a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you need to be told that, but it's a bad idea because it leads to a very bad rebirth in the future. But the, the, the opposite side of the coin is that if you treat your parents well, it's a very uh, powerful field of, of making good karma. Yeah? Because it's quite it can be hard in family life. So if you get that right, uh, it is actually very powerful. Uh, so take that opportunity. Yeah, don't wait till they are dead. Now is the chance. Uh, now is the opportunity. Take it now. Uh, and on the deathbed, absolutely do do these things. Uh. So um, yeah, and don't go to the 
death, you know, to your de parents' or deathbed or anyone's deathbed and cry, oh, no, don't die. <laughs> What do you mean don't die? I'm dying. I can't change it. <laughs> <laughs> so don't do that because it kind of just creates more problems. Yeah, don't, don't tell people not, <laughs> not to die. Yeah. Instead, just go there and be, you know, have a, you know, if you find it very hard, it's too difficult, then, uh, um, you know, wait till you kind of feel in, uh, nicely, emotionally balanced or take Ajahn Brahm along so you can tell a few jokes <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> then it's much easier here. Yeah. But uh, and don't you know? It's, it's interesting when I because I travel quite a lot to Asia as well. I travel to you know Singapore and Malaysia, and in Singapore they tell me these horror stories. They always have these uh, people who you know when someone is dying, they all these Christians come along and they want to convert people on the deathbed. Yeah, because Christianity they have they have this very in, in Singapore they have this very fundamentalist kind of Christianity, and everything is about conversion. You have to convert other people. And when it's all about conversion, it creates a lot of conflict, yeah, when you want to convert, because it's just, uh, and uh, especially on your deathbed, yeah, and you can imagine you're dying, and you're really kind of confused. Become a Christian now, you know, before it's too late. Uh, and uh, I don't know what to do, I'm a Buddhist, okay, okay, then I'll become a Christian. You can imagine the, the confusion, and the kind of how much, uh, uh, how problematic it is, uh, yeah, so keep those people away when someone is dying. <laughs> it is not very nice to die in that way, yeah. And uh, anyway, you don't become a Christian by converting on your deathbed. That's impossible. You're just dying. You're just saying something, you know, to sort of maybe to get rid of them or something. Uh, that's not how you become a Christian. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of pointless. Yeah, the whole exercise is just meaningless. Uh, so I <laughs> so that is, the, that, that is the wrong way. Be peaceful. If you want to be Christian, fine. If you want to be Buddhist, okay. But be peaceful when you die. That is the most important thing. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to the next one. <coughs> Okay, dear Ajahn, I wonder, is there a recording, either audio or video, of yourself teaching Anapanasati meditation? And how can one access that, please? There should be. I teach this all the time. and uh, But, uh, you know, listen to Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm is the, the super-duper expert. If you want to listen to Ajahn Brahm, he's really here. But uh, if you want to listen to my teachings, you can. And they should be available on the internet. Just type in my name, type Anapanasati, Mindfulness of Breathing. Uh, I know on the... Um, uh, BSWA website, uh, there's a lot of the uh, uh, s retreat teachings I give are actually available there and you should be able to find the Anapanasati Sutta taught. I've also taught it before on these BSV retreats that we usually we have them down in Anglesey at one of the retreat centers, uh, kind of a scout camp or whatever it is down there, which is actually it's very nice down there. It's very simple, but it's very, the surroundings are really nice for meditation practice. Uh, so I don't know if the BSV has those recordings, maybe. I'm not sure. If they are, I think they were recorded. Maybe they are available. But try on the internet first, uh, especially the BSWA website. Uh, yeah, And then you should be able to find it somewhere. Uh, and um, so uh, if you can't find it, let me know. Maybe I can find it on the website. Uh, so let's see. See what happens. Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, uh, First of all, I would like to pay my respects and express my heartful gratitude to yourself and Adani Sarano. <laughs> my question is, can a layperson really penetrate Anicca, Anatta and Dukkha, break the link of dependent origination at Avidja without attaining Samadhi? 
If no, then how feasible it is it for an aging householder in chronic pain with a myriad of responsibilities to enter into the deep samadhi, gain an insight, and uh, uh, and uh, at the least become a sotapanna in this life? <laughs> how feasible is it? Well, it all depends on the qualities you have. I I don't know. It depends on who you are. Yeah, and uh, so. Um, Depends on what you have done with your life, and if you if you have some good samadhi and meditation already, then there it, it's possible. And if you can't do it while you are still alive, then maybe on your deathbed, yeah. Because the thing is that the deathbed is a very powerful moment. Uh, uh, the whole point of the death contemplation we did before is to help us to let go. Uh, and of course, when you are eventually dying, if you have done that death contemplation well, you know what is happening. You really have to let go on your deathbed. That is the opportunity to gain that samadhi and maybe also have the insights. So you never know. It is not. It is not impossible. How likely is it? I can. I can't possibly tell you. It all depends on you know all of these uh, factors, and uh, it's just impossible to say. But uh, it is not. It is not impossible. So um, yeah. So just do your very best. Uh, keep on doing the right thing in this life. Uh, yeah. See if there's anything more you can do to uh, improve your uh, uh, practice even more. Uh, look out for those defilements of the mind that are bad. See if you can do more to overcome those defilements. Uh, make yourself as ready as you possibly can. Um, read more suttas to inspire yourself, to brainwash yourself. Yeah, so you get nice and clean brain. Uh, brainwashing has two, two nice meanings. Uh, brainwashing has this beautiful double meaning. Uh, you both get uh, yeah, cleaned out in a kind of doubled respect. So, uh, and then you are setting yourself up to the best possible uh, chance. But remember that even if you don't make that breakthrough in this life, uh, if you have a good practice in this life, if you have a good understanding of these teachings, uh, and by good understanding I really mean the word of the Buddha and not just all kinds of random teachings from all kinds of teachers. Uh, because if you are going to rediscover uh, the teaching of the Buddha in your next life. Uh, it is the, the stable teaching is the teaching of the Buddha. The idiosyncratic teachings that you know you get from various teachers, uh, you're unlikely to meet that again in your next life. Uh, what you will, the only thing that is really stable across time and societies uh, is the teaching of the Buddha. And this is one of the reasons why it is very useful to go back to the suttas uh, because they give you that common teaching which everybody in the world uh, if you get reborn in the Devaloka, yeah, the teaching the Devalokas will give you come from the suttas as well. That will be what you hear if you go there. Uh, and then you reborn as a Deva, yeah. Quite nice to be reborn as a Deva, yeah. You might as well if you're gonna be reborn anyway. Get reborn as a Deva, and then the Devas give you the Buddha's teachings and think, wow, I heard this before somewhere. Yeah, gee, maybe I should kind of do some of this stuff, and then you kind of carry on as a deva with your practice, being kind, being careful, being gentle. And then maybe you can make a breakthrough even as a deva. In the suttas, yeah, you see devas also becoming stream mentors. So it is it's possible even as a deva to attain these things. Uh, so that is good. Yeah. So if you don't make make become a stream mentor, at the very least, you're setting yourself up for uh, further practice in the future. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, please announce that all Dhamma Talks and Q&A sessions are being recorded and will be available on the BSV's podcast channel 
in the Podbean app. This is also being recorded, yeah? So this is, this is good, yeah? <laughs> yeah, so yes, okay. More information on how to access the recordings will be in the future newsletter here. Okay, so there you are. So now, now you know. They are recorded, <laughs> so you can listen to them again here. Uh-huh, okay, good. Okay. Uh, if the Buddha said neutral feeling is a better feeling than happiness, should I cultivate this feeling in everyday life? For example, when I see a beautiful flower or uh, at a nice meal, do I appreciate them? But should I feel neutral about them? <laughs> 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 Some people, when they are depressed, they said they can't feel anything. Why is it a problem? <laughs> Yeah, so this is the, the neutral feeling is um, only good if it is a very high kind of neutral feeling. The ordinary neutral feeling in life is not actually neutral. It's a kind of boredom. Yeah, you don't really know what's going on. It's kind of uh, you don't really appreciate it at all. And that is not a very useful neutral feeling. So if you see a nice flower, appreciate the flower. If you have a good meal, appreciate your, your meal. Yeah, don't try to make it all neutral because your life is going to be utterly miserable. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get depressed uh, and you're going to go nowhere on the Buddhist path as a consequence. So the thing about the sensual pleasures of the world and the pleasures of the spiritual path they are, is a kind of gradual moving from one to the other one. Uh, don't throw out all your pleasures in life uh, because you're going to be absolutely miserable. Instead, gradually move from one to the other one. Uh, and as you do so, your interest in the sensual pleasures will just gradually reduce automatically because you have another happiness that is there. Uh, and you will never, you will always actually enjoy those sensual pleasures to some extent. Yeah, It's interesting that in the suttas, the Buddha says that uh, if you gain a deep state of samadhi, you appreciate your food more than any time before. You are no longer attached to it. You don't crave for it, but it's precisely because you don't crave for it and attach to it that you actually experience that food even better than before. And even the simple food feels like this really nice meal. Yeah, because you have the ability to really experience the taste 100%. You have absolute mindfulness, uh, absolute awareness. You're not distracted by craving, which always drives you into the future. You're in the present moment fully. Uh. So it's kind of weird yeah, that you actually enjoy the sensual pleasures more, the less craving you have. Uh. Kind of strange, isn't it? Uh. So craving is actually a hindrance to the real enjoyment of these things. Uh. So for that reason... For goodness sake, enjoy those things, yeah? Uh, and then when you come into meditation, enjoy your meditation as well. Build up the happy feelings. It is way, way, way down the path before you really start enjoying the neutral feelings. This is kind of for super-duper meditators, yeah? The really rare meditators who, who get to that particular point. So uh, uh, happiness is such an important part of life and is such an important part of meditation Happiness is the glue that takes you into samadhi. Without happiness, there's no way you're going to be able to watch the breath or get anywhere in your meditation. It is absolutely fundamental. In fact, the whole path, whenever the Buddha describes the path of, of meditation as a felt first-person experience, happiness is just absolutely fundamental to that path. Uh, pamuja, joy, piti, rapture, pasadi, tranquility, sukha, happiness, then comes samadhi, yeah? Everything, almost every step on the path is about happiness. 
Yeah, that is how important it is. Uh, so don't forget the happiness. Start off substituting gradually, uh, uh, but initially also enjoy the pleasures of the world. Uh, it's not a big deal if you enjoy a meal. It is only a problem if you sit down afterwards and think about the food all the time. Uh. <laughs> but maybe that's what you do. I, I just recently... <laughs> this is the reality. Sometimes we do think about the food all the time. I've just got a... There was this, this lady in Perth, a very, very nice lady, and she's a, you know, she meditates as a very kind of committed Buddhist, she's been around for a long time, and, and she wrote this little kind of essay that she was going to publish in our, in our newsletter, and she was talking about how when she goes on retreat, she thinks about food all the time. <laughs> and I thought it was very sweet. This is being very honest. Yeah? It takes some of the pressure off when we can be honest about these things that are pretending. But hopefully you don't think about it all the time, yeah, and that is kind of where it is at, uh, and uh, you know, so uh, ideally, you so you just enjoy your food, uh, and then you come when you come to your meditation, let it go. Uh, so that is really the ideal way of doing this, uh, yeah. And if you think about it too much, then go and have a piece of cheese and chocolate or whatever in the evening, uh, and then if you have a piece, very often the kind of the desire just goes again, and then you're back in business. Uh, so uh, yeah, okay. So I hope that makes sense. Okay, dear Ajahn, re-establishing mindfulness before beginning to contemplate on the object of meditation like the breath. Can you help me? I always thought mindfulness had to be mindfulness of something, uh, that it doesn't exist alone. So how, uh, how can I establish mindfulness as su suggested? Uh, thank you for the help. Uh, well... Yes, mindfulness is always mindfulness of something. That's true. You cannot actually have a, this, a, no such thing as a kind of without an object. Uh, but the point is that, first of all, you actually you don't even have a mindfulness to begin with. Initially, the mind is just all over the place. yeah, And it is natural for the mind to be like that. If you are tired, the mind is very difficult to stay in the present moment. It goes all over the place. Uh, or if you have used it a lot, so you are kind of have a momentum of thought. That momentum often continues. Uh, yeah, and it's hard to kind of overcome that. Uh, so the first thing is just to relax, yeah, and allow the mind to settle down. You don't even have mindfulness in the beginning. Yeah? And as you allow the mind to settle down, clarity starts to come out of that. Uh, yeah, this is really the initial part. Allow that clarity to arise. Uh, and and uh, so that, that is how it kind of uh, emerges. And when clarity starts to emerge, it means that the thinking is dying down, the tiredness of the mind starts to dissipate and evaporate, and you start to see what is in front of you. That is mindfulness happening here. Now, there's two kinds of mindfulness. There's directed mindfulness and undirected mindfulness. Uh, undirected mindfulness is what I was talking about before. We are just aware of whatever is happening around you. Yeah, You sit in this room and you are aware of just... Uh, the noises or the sounds, you don't, you're not actually directing your mind to anything specific. Yeah? Just allow, whatever catches your attention is okay. Yeah, Sitting back, just being aware in general. Uh, that is kind of the initial arising of mindfulness, first of all. Present moment awareness, if you like, yeah? uh, following Ajahn Brahm's kind of structure. Yeah? So this is where you want to be first. And then directed mindfulness is when you use that mindfulness to direct it to a specific object like the breath or the meta object or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. So this is really the distinction here. Undirected and directed mindfulness. Uh, and um, 
undirected is uh, kind of uh, uh, easier because once you start directing it, uh, it is there always the danger of starting to control because you, uh, by putting it on one object, well, it's very easy to kind of use force to do that. And that is where people often go wrong as a consequence. Uh, so just relax. Don't do anything at all. Allow the mind to regain its energy. Gradually allow the clarity to come. Clarity, perhaps clarity never comes to you. That's okay. So just spend the whole retreat just relaxing. It's okay. Yeah. Nothing is really wrong. The idea is just to move in a certain direction. Slowly, slowly, slowly. Yeah. And then if clarity arises, uh, yeah, allow it to uh, reach a certain strength. Uh, and then very often the breath is just there anyway because the breath is part of the present moment. Uh, it's part of all the phenomena happening around you. And then you start noticing the breath. Uh, and the moment you notice the breath, you're in a sense already doing anapanasati. Then you kind of gently stay with that breath. Uh, and if the breath wants to go, you allow it to go. Then the breath comes back again. Uh, yeah, you bring it back again. You don't even bring it back. You allow it to re-arise. Uh, once you talk about bringing it back, you kind of have the idea of willpower again. Uh, so it's like you're really resting here. Uh, it's like you are watching something you really enjoy here. Uh, yeah, if you're reading a book you really enjoy, or you're watching a movie you really enjoy, uh, you don't have to force your attention on the movie. It just happens automatically, yeah? So the breath should be a bit like that. Uh, it's a relaxed kind of attention, a natural attention. You're staying with something here. Uh, So, uh, okay, see what happens. Sir. Okay, Venerable Ajahn, I feel like creativity makes the world better with the new innovations, that are, but sometimes it uh, will be very disruptive, like making nuclear bomb, etc. Uh, yes, don't do that. Uh, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Can't we make creative ideas in a good way? Following the Buddhist teachings, Buddha mentioned that creativity also makes suffering. Please explain. Uh, so again, it's about time and place. Yeah. So please be creative. Uh, and uh, when you are creative, then do it with a good heart. Uh, do it with the idea of helping the world and doing something positive for the world. Uh, and when you are creative in that way, it's wonderful. But stop being creative in your meditation practice. That's kind of the point here. Uh, yeah? When it comes to meditation, let go of all the creativity and start uh, to see an even deeper truth. Uh, it's unavoidable that you will be creative in ordinary life. Uh, it's perfectly fine. Uh, use it in a skillful way to enable your meditation down the track. Uh, don't indulge in it too much. If you indulge in it too much, uh, then you won't be able to stop when meditation happens. Uh, Indulging in creativity means like indulging in that attachment to the uh, sense of self, the self being the creator. Yeah, I create. Yay, me. I am the creator. If you like that too much, you can't stop when the meditation happens. So create for the sake of goodness, for the sake of kindness, not to create an ego out of it. Uh, and then you will be heading in the right direction. Uh. So it's all that time and place. Yeah, then uh, you will be doing the right thing. Uh. Okay, so the last question for tonight. How does dependent origination relate to the Four Noble Truths? Okay. <laughs> so it, in, in many ways, yeah, so the Four Noble Truths, remember the dependent origination starts out with avidja. Avidja means delusion or ignorance or uh, not seeing things according to reality or whatever. What is it that you don't see according to reality? Four Noble Truths. Uh, yeah? 
So straight away, so it re that is one way that it relates, yeah, at the very kind of base of dependent origination. Seeing things according to reality actually means seeing according to these four noble truths. Uh, yeah, and this is how it kind of works, uh, how it relates. Uh. Another way that it relates, and I will come back to this later on on this retreat, is that the second noble truth uh, actually is a shorthand for dependent origination. Uh. Remember that dependent origination is about how dukkha, how suffering arises in the world. Uh, that is also what the second noble truth is. Uh. But the second noble truth says that craving is the cause for dukkha. Whereas dependent origination says that avidja is the cause of dukkha. So which one is right? Uh, is the Buddha being inconsistent? No, they are both right, but they are just different views of the same process. Uh, because craving comes in the middle of dependent origination. Yeah. So in a sense, craving is the cause for suffering, in the sense that craving is what propels us into the future. Yeah, craving is this force that projects you into a new existence and into the future all the time. Uh, but craving itself has a deeper cause. Uh, craving cannot be given up completely just by being mindful. Uh, yeah, that's impossible. You need insight to overcome craving. And that insight that you have is what is the overturning of avidja or delusion at the very root uh, of dependent origination. Overturn avidja at the bottom, that leads to the elimination of craving, which in turn leads to the elimination of suffering. Yeah. So the second noble truth is a shorthand for dependent origination. Yeah. And you have the third noble truth, which is dependent cessation. Yeah. Yeah, the dependent or dependent origination comes in both the cessation order and an origination order. Dependent cessation means you eliminate avidja, eliminate delusion, not seeing things according to reality. When you see things in the right way, the whole thing ceases. Uh, yeah, this is another way that these things kind of hold together here. So, uh, and then of course you have the path. Yeah, the, and then you have the, the. What is interesting also is that uh, you have the noble eightfold path. Yeah, the first factor of the noble eightfold path is right view. Uh, right view of what? The right view of the four noble truths. Uh. So the four noble truths have the four noble truths within them. Uh. Yeah, is that kind of amazing? And then the, within those four noble truths, you also have the noble eightfold path, and within those you have right view, and within that you have four noble truths again. Uh. Within those four noble truths, you have the. No level path you have, so it goes on like that indefinitely. Yeah, it's kind of a, uh, it's w w one of these. Uh, w what is that called? Uh, uh, re recursion. Uh, yeah, endless recursion. Yeah, it just goes on and on for en forever like that. Uh. So um, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> this complex kind of how this whole thing holds together. Yeah. So that is a few ways how dependent origination. Uh, fits in with the Four Noble Truths, yeah, how they connect together. And I'm sure there's many other ways as well, but uh, I don't. my mind doesn't seem to want to go to any further connection, so I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's enough for now. Uh, anyway, so uh, please uh, continue uh, enjoying yourself, uh, and uh, we'll see you back again tomorrow morning. Uh, and uh, let's do the Arahang Sama Samburo together. Uh.